This morning, uh, we have. <laughs> it's like, uh, Dan, we are so glad to have you uh, back. And uh, uh, Dan's been with us uh, several weeks over the past few months. And uh, we're just grateful for the challenging and powerful messages that you bring to us. We're glad to have you back. Uh, my guess is we won't have you back for a while, but we look forward to a time. Uh, when you can come, maybe fill in for Colin, do something like that later later on. But we're so thankful to you and uh, the, the powerful messages that you bring us. Uh, God is really working through you, and we are excited to hear what you have to share with us today. Thank Welcome you. Welcome, Dan, back, please. Well, thank you. <laughs> Too kind. I, I, I am a little sad about the fact that you've hired a preacher now. I mean, good for you, not so great for me. Because I like coming over here. I like this church, and it's been fun for me to come. But you are going to be so, so blessed to have Colin and Holly and their kids. I've known Colin from a distance for a long time, and for the last four or five years, gotten to know him pretty well. And he is one of, really, the stars of his generation in so many ways. He is an exceptionally gifted young man. Um, as far as the competencies that you're looking for in somebody's position, I mean, he's going to top out in terms of his skills and his competencies. And I think in terms of chemistry, he really fits this area. He fits your vision. Um, and so I think that that's a great fit. And in the long run, chemistry matters more than competency in terms of right fit. But ultimately, the big question is character over the long haul. And that's where I'm most impressed with Colin. And I got to be in his church uh, in Denver, the Littleton Church, back in March. And I preached there. I'm not sure why I was there, but anyway, I was there. They brought me up and preached. And that particular Sunday, they did a new member orientation. So I stayed for lunch. Colin led that whole process and preached both services. So I got to be with them a fair part of that day. And what really impressed me about Colin, I'd heard him preach, heard him preach at lectureship and other things. And he's a good preacher. He's a very good preacher. Very bright. He's got a little bit of prophetic edge, but he's more pastoral. He, he seems to be a really good balance in terms of he's got a good vision theologically, understands the times. But what impressed me was watching him interact with his people. Because I did that for over 20 years. And I know what it's like to be talking to one church and still serving in another. And I know how hard it is to stay fully engaged in one church when your mind and your heart are being pulled away to another situation. And I watched time after time as people came up to him and talked to him in the lobby, in the back of the worship center, before and after the new member orientation, and how he was fully present with each one of those people, how he was looking into their eyes, how he was listening to them, how he was showing attention and care, how he demonstrated a spiritual sensitivity and was shepherding them with a patience, giving them his full heart, and I was impressed. You don't see a lot of people like that, even in ministry, who have that kind of humility, that ability to listen. And, and so I, I just think you are incredibly blessed. He is, he's not a uh, my way or the highway kind of guy. He's very humble, very coachable, eager to learn, um, and demonstrated that he can really be a team player. And yet he has great leadership skills. So I just am grateful that he's coming. I hope occasionally, you know, he'll invite me to come over and get to be with you guys. Uh, that would be fun for me. But 
I want to be praying for him and his family today in the Littleton Church because this is his last Sunday there. And this is not a business transaction. The relationship is not just an employer-employee relationship. They're spiritual family. And this was a hard, hard decision for him. He loves those people. They love him. They were not ready for him to make a move. It was a tough, tough call. And they're losing a member of their family. And he's saying goodbye to family. And your gain is their loss. And they're now where you were looking. And so look what you've done to another church, you know. So love that church enough to pray for them. And let's pray for Colin and pray for that church right now. Father, we're so thankful for the way you've blessed the search process that this church is engaged in and the way that you've helped them discern your call. And it just seems right to me just as an outsider watching and looking and knowing something of this church and knowing something of Colin to see how that that's a good fit, and, and I know his family is going to be delighted to be here and be of great service to this church. But today we pray for the Littleton Church as they say goodbye to the Packer family and as the Packers say goodbye to them and as they experience a separation and the loss of a family member, and, and it's painful and it's hurtful and there's a fear and feelings of, of rejection and loss and trying to see this as you moving in their midst doesn't feel very right to them. And I pray, Lord, that you would shepherd that church and provide for that church both in the interim and in the, the search for the next guy who will come in and follow Colin and that you will provide for them as you have for this church and that it will be a healthy time for reflection and rediscovery of themselves and their vision and your call on them and that you'll bring them the right person as you bring uh, Colin and Holly here. And we're so thankful, Lord, for the way that you are so much larger than any individual congregation and all things serve your kingdom and your end. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was a little bit um, discouraged coming into this year. And then as we've gone deeper into the year, it's gotten worse. Uh, because it's an election year and the fall's coming and the political machine is cranking up and the ads are going to be coming on. And before long, it's just going to be everywhere. It's going to be constant. Now, thank the Lord, it's not a presidential election year. It's an off-year election, so it may not be as bad. But I find these election processes in our country to be incredibly painful and disturbing. And I have lost my faith in government to solve anything. I, all of my faith is in the kingdom of God. And so I tolerate the politics, but I don't know where and when politics turned into character assassination, but I've had enough. I've just had enough. I keep wondering, are any of our leaders for anything or are they just against other people and against things? Do they have any vision for what our country can become or are they just against the other party wanting to demonize them and scare us against the opponent? And any freshman debater in any high school in the country can tell you it is a whole lot easier to argue against your opponent's position than to articulate your own. It is a whole lot easier to tear down a building than to construct one. It's a whole lot easier to destroy your character than to build up a good reputation. 
And our politicians are taking the easy way out. They are attacking, 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 negative, negative, negative. When are you going to tell us what you would do? What's your vision? How are you going to lead our country? I'm just fed up with all of the attacks and the negative. And it's not just about church I'm talking. I mean, talking about country, I'm talking about church too. Because we tend to be very negatively oriented in church. The language church has gotten to be so much about what's wrong and who's wrong and what needs to change. There's kind of an inward-looking desperation, self-flagellation kind of thing going on. All it seems people want to talk about is what's wrong with the church, what needs to change, how this generation is checking out, how that generation is checking out. There are no end of books telling us what's wrong with the church and how the emerging generation is checking out and only X percent is going to be there. And I've taught those classes and I've preached those sermons too and it's not all wasted because it's true. There are weaknesses that are causing problems in the church. They're there in abundance. We need to know where the problems are. We need some critique. We can't fix problems that we won't admit, but it's over the top. And for all of the weaknesses of the church, and there are plenty if you go looking for them, but for all the weaknesses of the church, I still believe that there is far more right with the church than there is wrong with the church, and we need to put more of our attention on what God is doing that is good than on what we are doing that is wrong. Because the church is far more than it appears to be from the outside. Now, maybe when you come to church on a typical Sunday, all you see is ordinary-looking people, and it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in you. And I understand that. I mean, you pull into the parking lot on a Sunday morning, and you come into a very large building, most of which is only used one day a week, and you sit on this long row of chairs and you mumble through a few songs, and you bow your head while somebody addresses a father in heaven, and you eat a tiny little piece of cracker, and you drink an itsy-bitsy little cup of grape juice, which we call the Lord's Supper, even though it's in the morning, and you listen to a speech, and you visit briefly, and then you head home to go to your real life. And when you're there and you look around you, the people may be dressed a little better than the people at Quick Trip on a Sunday morning, but not a whole lot. They're not that impressive, and it all just seems so mundane and so meaningless at times, and you wonder, why do we bother? Are we even any different than people in the world? Isn't there a better way to spend a Sunday morning? Does it change anything? And it's hard to see God in the church sometimes. But this is not new. The reality is so far beyond what we can see, just a cursory glance. Those average, ordinary people looking around you are so much more than what you can see with the human eye. John has been trying to tell us this for 2,000 years. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he described a, a solution to this problem when he said, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now, the reason the world does not know us or doesn't recognize us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. 
And what we will be has not yet been made known, but when we, uh, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. John says, look, I know that it doesn't look like it. I know to appearance to say we are the children of God seems just kind of crazy. And the world looks at us and they see nothing special. That's okay. They're not that smart. They didn't recognize Jesus either. They couldn't tell who he was or what he was. But here's the thing. All the people sitting around you, all the people you engage with in church, when Jesus comes back and we see him as he is, we're not only going to be enraptured with his glory, we're going to be transformed and share his glory. We're going to be like him when we see him. And if you understand that and you have that mindset and that's how you view each other, it will transform everything. It will have a purifying effect on your life. Paul essentially is trying to say the same thing to the Colossians multiple places throughout his letter. For example, in chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, the mystery of what he's been doing all through the ages. And what is that mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. The great mystery of God is that he's putting his spirit, his hope, his power in us. And we can't quite see what it's all about, but the hope of glory and transformation dwells within us. So he says in chapter 3, verse 3 through 4, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. One of my favorite all-time quotes comes from C.S. Lewis who says, in effect, to paraphrase, God intentionally does not let us see how glorious we will be in the resurrection. Because if we could see the kind of creatures we will one day be now, we would be tempted to fall down and worship ourselves. It is for our own good that the glory of what God is doing in us is veiled to keep us appropriately humble before the greatness of God. But here's the thing. The church is not just a set of individuals who will one day be transformed into this kind of glory. The church itself is a powerful and awesome instrument of God. And the New Testament calls us many things. He calls us the bride of Christ, which conveys the love of God for us, the love of Jesus for us, that we are the bride of Christ being purified and beautified for his wedding day. We are the family of God. We are God's temple. We are God's field. And these are more than just metaphors, but the most common and compelling image of the church in the New Testament to me is what we sang about just a moment ago when we talk about we are the body of Christ. For example, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Do you hear that? He is head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Look at how expansive that language is, that the lordship of Jesus over all things is for the church, which is the full expression of him in every way and everything. And I just go, wow, that's just mind-boggling. That is not how I think about the church. I picture the body of Jesus completely differently. 
When we picture the body of Jesus, when we see Jesus, we typically think of a guy who walks around in long flowing white robes, probably on flannel. He probably has European features because we're used to the, the, the Jesus of Europe, Western Europe. So he's overly white and probably has blue eyes and looks completely un-Palestinian because we have racial bias still in the church today. And we picture this guy in sandals and white flowing robes who looks very European walking around Palestine 2,000 years ago. And we know that that guy is not walking down our streets. He's not over at Valero gassing up and getting a coffee. And anybody who came in and said, yeah, I bumped into Jesus, you know, and I was getting my morning coffee, he was sitting up there, he's like, there's something wrong with you. You must be a nut. And yet that is exactly what the New Testament tells us, that Jesus is walking our streets, Jesus is actively involved in our world as a living, moving, present body in the world. And we can see Jesus, hear Jesus, touch Jesus today, but it's in the church. One of my favorite verses in recent years has been Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And I know that's kind of weird, but it's because of the power of everything that Luke is saying before and after that verse that he crystallizes there. Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, to start volume 2 of his story of Jesus, volume 1 was the gospel of Luke, but in volume 2, verse 1, verse 1, he says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus, and here's the most important word, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You see, the Gospel of Luke, Volume 1, told us about what Jesus began to do and teach, but Acts is going to tell us what Jesus continues to do and teach. Because the church, Luke is trying to tell us, is the ongoing story of Jesus as Jesus continues to walk and move and breathe and speak and act in the world. And the book of Acts doesn't really end. It just stops. You get to the end of chapter 28, and it's just like, well, where's the next chapter? That didn't wrap up. Paul's still awaiting prison. How does this thing end? Well, that's because we're still writing chapters. The story of Jesus is ongoing in the world, and that means that when you, as a Christian, you as a church... Give away food to the hungry. Give away clothes to the poor. When you actively get involved in service, that's not just you being good people. That's Jesus in the world. When you go visit a nursing home, when you spend time in a prison, when you go to a hospital and you're just present with people who are struggling or hurting or lonely or neglected, That's not just you being thoughtful or nice. That's Jesus being physically present in the world. When you help out a sick neighbor by mowing their yard, when you take an interest in some kid at school who is not being loved on or cared for that's on your kid's ball team or in your kid's band and you invest in that kid and mentor that kid, that's not just you being a nice guy or a nice woman. That is Jesus Christ living and moving and breathing through his people in the world. Now, none of us individually is the fullness of Jesus. We have different giftings. We have different strengths. We have different weaknesses. But collectively, the church in the world is the body of Jesus in the world. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, just as a body, though one, has many parts, 
but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. We are his one body, different cells and organs, united by his one spirit, working together to continue the story of Jesus all over the planet. The church is not some mere institution that meets periodically at a certain street corner or in a certain building. The church is the living, moving, active presence of Jesus in the world. It's you and me continuing the ministry of Jesus. Now, I love that. I love that theology. I love that thought. I love that image. I just have a really hard time believing it's about us. I have a really hard time seeing Christ in the church that I experience instead of the church of my imagination. I have struggled, and I'll confess to you, I still struggle at times with cynicism, and I have struggled at times with downright contempt toward the way I view the church. And I think a lot of it is because I'm a preacher's kid. And when you grow up a preacher's kid in the church, it's kind of like growing up in a petting zoo. Everybody feels like that they need to be able to inspect your whole life, walk into your pen, and put their hands on you. And you are available to everybody all the time for inspection and critique and judgment. And you feel like your life is proof of whether or not your dad is really a legitimate spiritual leader or not. It's, it's more than living in a fishbowl. And there is intense pressure with that, and that tends to form resentment for all of us who are preacher's kids. But beyond that, when you are a preacher's kid, you see things it would be better for you not to see. You hear things. You're in a position to know things that make it really hard. You see the ugly underbelly of the church all of the time. And so I saw all the cracks in the mold in the church walls. I knew the secrets of our church members' lives, just overhearing conversations that I shouldn't have. I knew about scandals and problems with church leaders. I knew about real moral failures in elders and ministers' lives. I saw and have seen through years of ministry some of the most horrible human behavior you can imagine not happening out in the world, happening in the church. And you may say, well, I've been in church a lot too. You know, I was there every time the doors were open. Hey, I was there when the doors were locked. I knew the names of the bugs in the baptistry. I knew where we kept the communion supplies and how to sneak in there and get some anytime I wanted. And as a teenager, church to me looked like mostly a pretend game for adults in denial trying to pacify their consciences and justify themselves before God. I didn't see the glorious church of Scripture in the reality of everyday church. And I could not reconcile the rhetoric of church with the reality of church. Jesus was cool. The church was sick. In 20-some years of ministry myself, I still struggle with that at times. And I did not want to go into ministry. I begged God, let me do anything else. I don't know what I'm going to be, but it's not going to be a preacher. I understand Jonah. I really do. Tarshish looks great. I got a picture of Tarshish on my wall, a big poster. God wouldn't let me go. 
But when I finally said yes and I caved in, I kind of went with an attitude. I know it's hard to imagine, but I did. And that was me and my generation, we're going to fix what's broken in the church. We're not putting up with this. We're either going to get it right or we're going to blow it up, but we are not going to leave it like it is. But here's the problem. My generation of preachers turned out to be just as broken as any of the generation that came before us. And we were the surgeons doing open body procedures with contaminated hands, giving the church our own diseases as we were trying to cure the ones that were there before us, especially me. And when God forced me to see my own brokenness and the depth of my brokenness and how I was rip- replicating my weakness in the church as w- trying I was trying to fix it, I had to outgrow my ungracious judgment of the church and learn to love the church the way that God loves the church. Not because of what it will be, but because of who God is. Not loving the church conditionally when it lives up to my image, but because these are people made in the image of God that God desperately cares about. And God sees great value in and sacrifice for, and he's no idiot. And so I had to forgive the church, which had long ago forgiven me. I heard it said that there are three stages of development in the way that we view church, and they parallel the three stages of development we have in the way we view our family. So, you know, when you're growing up and you're a little kid, unless you come from a really dysfunctional home, and maybe even if you do, you tend to think that whatever your family's like is normal and everybody else is weird, you know? So, for example, my mother uh, was organized. Uh, It may be the German blood, because we have German ancestry on her side of the family, and we're really organized. So, for example, my mother would plan out a meal six months in advance. You do that, right? I mean, you could go look on the calendar on the refrigerator, freezer, the extra one out in the garage, and look and see on October 12th we're going to have, and there would be the menu. We had uh, eggs and bacon on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, cereal on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We had pancakes on Saturdays and omelets on Sundays. Y'all all have a pattern like that, right? When I got home from school, we were able to eat 10 grapes, not 12. I mean, this is not just some kind of crazy, wild place. There's a rule for everything, and everything has a rule. Man, we are organized people. And I found out after I got older and started going out and spending time with other people that there are a lot of people out there living without rules. For all, I mean, they like eat when they get hungry. There's no set time. They put ketchup on their eggs. Isn't that against the law? What is wrong with these people? And we tend to view whatever our family was like. That's normal. Everything else is weird and wrong. And then we had adolescence. And now mom and dad are the dumbest people on the planet. And our family is the nerdiest, weirdest. And every other family is better than ours. And that is all part of God's plan. He makes adolescence this way. So we'll want them to move away. Just get them out. And then they come to their senses, hopefully, if things work right, and achieve kind of a mature status, which hopefully we do, where we look back on the families of our origin and we say, you know, mom and dad had their weaknesses and we had some problems and some things in my family that I don't want to perpetuate, but my goodness, they got a lot right. 
thank God for that. Let's hold on to that. Let's pass that on. And you kind of have this more objective appreciation of the strengths and the weaknesses of your family. And you know good and well, you're going to pass some of this weakness on and you hope your kids are as charitable toward you. You know, I think I've told you this before. My wife told our kids, our parents mess us up and we forgave them for it. And we're messing you up and you're just going to forgive us for it. So there's just life. But the same thing is true in terms of how we view the church. There's this sort of early childhood idealism we have about the church. So whatever church we grew up in is just the ideal perfect church and anything else is just weird and wrong. So, for example, if you grew up in this church, you may not know just how uptight and white you are. I mean, you are. You, if you don't know that, you really ought to travel around and visit some other places. It's not wrong, but it's who you are. You are a white suburban church, and you have certain things that you do. You're very orderly. You're very prim and proper. Things happen on a schedule. You like to plan stuff. That's not wrong, but that's who you are. And people grow up with that. Or your way of doing the Lord's Supper, or your way of doing music, or your way of doing what We just assume that if we did it. That's right. That's scriptural. Anything else is wrong. That scares me. That clearly is wrong. There must be a scripture against that somewhere. And, and we kind of have this childhood idealism about our church. But then people hopefully grow up. But as they do, they go through this adolescent cynicism stage where, oh, the church I grew up in are the most self-deluded hypocrites. We're so ignorant. Every other church is cooler than us. We're the most awkward, nerdy, backward, just kind of attack our heritage. And you get people in this phase who kind of think that, you know, anything that offends the old people is probably spiritual progress. But hopefully you move on to a third, more mature stage that says the church has both its strengths and its weaknesses. And the church that I grew up in has many good qualities about it that I want to hang on to and I want to pass on and appreciate and honor. But, you know, we need to make some adjustments. We drop the ball and we don't honor our pioneers by camping where they fell down. So let's... Let's make some improvements. But the problem is a lot of people get stuck in stage one or stage two. You've got a lot of fearful, kind of superstitious people who don't even really know what they believe who are stuck in the church of their childhood and of just defending that without any really good reason against anything that looks different in constant fear that if we don't do it just right, that God's going to get us. And there's just sort of this defensive idealism. But you got a lot of other people who are in church, but they're mad at the church, and they're cynical, and they're critical, and, you know, every other church is better, and why can't we be like this? Why can't we be like this? And they just get stuck, perpetually stuck, and they can't move on to maturity. And whether you're stuck in stage one or stage two, it's really unhealthy. And you may love the idea of church, but you can't handle the reality of church. But the truth is that the church comes to us in human form. We don't like the idea that God could live in the humanity of the church and in the brokenness of the church, forgetting that God came to us in Jesus in human form with all the weaknesses and problems that go with that and the human body that Jesus inhabited, got halitosis, greasy hair, body odor, and all of the other things that go with being a human being in the world. Could get sick, tired. You see... God took on our humanity in Jesus, and the church still has all of that weakness in humanity. But people get stuck, and they don't want to see the humanity. They don't want to see the brokenness. They don't want to see the weaknesses. They don't want the stinky parts of the body of Christ. They don't want any of that. They want this ideal church, and we're still chasing after this 
old kind of Gnostic heresy that God and His holiness couldn't really live in the brokenness of the church. So we're looking for that ideal perfect church. And, and there are these church hoppers that are perennially looking for that perfect church. And they're always telling you about the church they left and how broken it was. And the new church, which is the perfect church, and how they do things right. And they keep finding the right church, but give them two to five years. And when they find how broken this church is, they're going to be move on looking for that ideal church. Or maybe, maybe you've gone off on some short-term mission trip and you're two weeks in another country. And boy, the way they do it here, these people are real disciples. They, they, these people really understand what it means to follow Jesus. Not like the people at home. You see, fortunately in two weeks, you can't really see the problems there. Hang around a month. You'll find out this church is messed up too. Go off hunting for the perfect church. It's elusive. Some preachers are the same way. They cannot shake loose the idea that there's this perfect ideal community of disciples out there that deserves me, and I deserve them. And I keep wondering about these people who hop from church to church to church, whether they're preachers or members, looking for this ideal church that's really full of disciples in the world. I keep wondering about these people. If you found that ideal church, what makes you think they would accept you into membership? Don't you understand that it is precisely the imperfection, the brokenness, and the sinfulness of the church that makes it possible for you to be a member of it? Because as soon as you place membership in the perfect church, it would be ruined. You would spoil it. I would spoil it. I thank God for the imperfection of the church, which permits me to be part of the people of God. And, and the reason that so many of us are angry at the church is because we are expecting of it what it can't be and what it will never be before the return of Jesus. And as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, expectations are just a premeditated form of resentment. Our key failure as Christians, as the church, is not our brokenness and our sinfulness. It's our pretentiousness. It's that we're trying to give off an image of something that we're not. And all we do is if we are successful in casting that image, we keep broken people from coming in because they know they would never belong here. Or we look like the world's biggest group of hypocrites because they can see through it. Whereas if we would let people see us for who we are, while all of a sudden they might feel like they could find God here too. Well, here's the reality And it's time we grew up and just accepted it. There is no ideal church. There are only real churches, and they're all a mess everywhere in the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7, Paul says some very important words. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, we don't like God putting the glorious treasure of the gospel in dirt jars. But he does on purpose because he doesn't want anybody 
confused about where the power and the glory come from. And his power is made perfect in weakness, Paul will go on later to say in this same book. But we don't like God putting his treasure in clay pots. We want the gospel in a golden chalice, and we're all still searching for that holy grail. But it is only in real clay pot churches filled with real broken people, people made of clay, with very real weaknesses. Those are the only places that you can find real encounters with the real God. And in a real church, we can get real help and real love and real forgiveness and real life that will last beyond the pretend life that struts around in the marketplaces and all the marketing of all the churches that want to pretend that they've got it right. It won't last. Now, if we wanted to, we could make a long list of all the wonderful qualities of this church. And I will say, you're an impressive group. I like coming here. You are well above average. I tell you, you are exceptional. You are special. Why should you be different than any other church? That's what I say. But you are. You're an impressive group of people. I am really excited about where this church is going. I'm going to be paying attention. I'm going to stay in communication with Colin. But I know this. You're going to struggle. You're going to have problems. You're going to have weaknesses because you're human beings. And while we could list all the excellent qualities of this church, ultimately no congregation is great because of anything we are in ourselves, but because of who lives in us. And that's the Spirit of God. And we really have to be careful. We don't begin to worship some idealized image of what we must become if we just get our house in order. The church is good and right, not because we are good and right, but because we are the dwelling place of the only one who is good and right. The church will have a future, not because of our wise vision and strategic plan, but because of the vision of him who called us into his community of faith and love. The church is going to grow in this community and around the world, not because of the wise decisions of skillful leaders, but because God gives the increase. This church is going to flourish not because you have learned the secrets of good marketing and management or have gotten that right vision for your community, but because the Lord of glory is transforming you into his likeness from one degree of glory unto another. Our message is not ourselves. We preach Christ crucified, the love of God who saves us by his grace, indwells us by his grace, leads us by his grace, and in the end we have nothing to offer anybody in the world except the grace of that same God. So what is right with the church? It is the body of Christ. It's real. It's covered with human flesh. It's kind of hairy and sweaty and it smells at times. But it is so much more than it appears. Because inside this clay vessel is an extraordinary treasure from God. And within this fleshly weak exterior is the Spirit of God himself living in human bodies, working to bring all creation back to himself. Praise be to God. One of my all-time favorite stories comes from Fred Craddock, who tells of going to be a visitor in a church that was celebrating some big anniversary, maybe their centennial. And it was a small country church. They didn't have a lot to hang their hat on, but 
from this church had come a world-famous preacher within their fellowship. And they were so proud of him. And they asked him to come back and speak. And it was old home week. And all these people had come back to hear. Everybody was so excited to hear this guy who came from this church to get up and preach and talk about us and how he got his start here. And everybody was sitting on the edge of their pew, leaning forward, just so eager, so thankful, so grateful for God's work among them all these years. And this preacher came back and started her sermon by saying, I spent the first 30 years of my life in this church, but it wasn't until I went away that I met Jesus. So he just kicked everybody in the gut. Took all the wind out of everybody. Deflated the church. Went on to talk about his experience of meeting Jesus after he left that church. Dr. Craddock said, I didn't get a chance to talk to him afterwards, but I wanted so badly to go up to him and just ask him a question. And just say, how in the world would you have recognized Jesus when you met him? If it hadn't been for all of those sweet people, all of those years telling you, now when you meet him, this is what he'll look like. 